0: Welcome, we're Jackie and Brian, and this is As the Ice Cream Churns. Together we founded Ample Hills Creamery, one of the most beloved ice cream brands of the last decade. Then we lost it all. We filed for bankruptcy a day before New York City shut down due to COVID-19. Now someone else owns Ample Hills, and we're out of work. But. We're ready to start over. Come join us for an exploration of what went wrong, and more importantly, what comes next. Our guide's our close friend, Debbie Rosen. She created the Cracked Cookies in our hit flavor, Salted Cracked Caramel. When she's not baking, she's a therapist. We thought she could help us navigate these troubled waters. Let's get started.
1: Morning, Debbie.
2: Morning. Hey, Deb. Hi. It's June of 2019, and you just found out you're not going to have enough money to make it through the winter. How'd you handle that?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, uh, ultimately, we didn't. (laughs) No. I mean, so the very first thing uh, we did after, um, you know, shedding a few tears uh, was to. Go through and call uh, our biggest investor. So our biggest investor had also been one of our landlords uh, for one of our our shops, and we um, he he had supported us millions of dollars uh, and had just been a, a great a great supporter. And so uh, he was our first phone call. Um, and you know it's it's an embarrassing thing to have to call up a landlord. And a supporter and an investor um, in June. It's summertime. The shops are all crowded. They're all busy. There's lines out the doors. And say, we're out of money. We're not going to make it. Uh, we need more money. Can you invest more money? Um, so, I did that. Uh, and you know, he was he he indicated from the beginning that uh, he'd be there to help. You know, he'd be a backstop. Uh, and um, you know, he'd be there.
2: Did he have any idea that this was happening?
1: No, at at that point until we called him, no. And that, you know, so... Of and course. from the
0: outside, you know, all of our shops. And this again, Brian said it was June, so, you know, they were all really busy. They were all doing really well. Um, you know, we had launched uh, Marvel, right? Yeah. Um, so, so everything from the outside looked great, yeah. and um, it, there would be no indication that we were, yeah. you know, on a on a course to to losing money. Yeah,
1: I think to, that I think it's worth noting that, you know all the problems that we had even you know every last thing that led up to and through uh, the bankruptcy process the brand the brand that we built was still as healthy as ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of the problems yeah. resolved around or revolved around uh, people not liking the ice cream anymore, shifts in dynamics of uh, people not eating as much ice cream or, or competition or people not caring about Ample Hills as much. I mean, if anything, the brand was hotter than ever with mm-hmm. the Marvel experience, um, even with the botched Mickey Mouse uh, experience. Uh, the Disney Shop. Uh, I mean, the brand was as big as ever, but we had these um, almost unsolvable, insurmountable problems unless we got more money. And so we went to this investor. He said, "Okay." Uh, he was, you know, he was angry. He was upset, as as anybody would be and, and should be. But you know, he wanted to protect his investment that he'd made, and he still believed in this brand and in the story. He wanted to see changes, you know, he wanted to see changes uh, that would allow for uh, him to make a a bigger investment. Uh, And if we made those changes, then he would make the investment and we'd be okay. So we got to work. I mean, one of the things that he asked us to do was to cut our own salaries, you know, our our executive salaries, and to look for other payroll cuts in the business. So we cut our own salaries by 10% immediately. Um, and then the next thing he wanted to do was to bring on board a new uh, co-president. Um, you know, we already had one president uh, who reported to me, a guy named Morgan Johnson, who had been one of our investors as well and was great and was working on the wholesale accounts and helping us uh, when we did raise money. And uh, he wanted, so this this landlord asked us to bring in uh, this new Uh, co-president who was a friend of his, an old personal friend, and this person had a huge background in retail business, uh, in grocery stores, also in financing. Uh, He was a CFO. He'd been a finance director. So he had a lot of uh, this experience that on on paper we were lacking. And And we were
0: excited about it. I mean, we, we actually were we're like great you know this yeah. you know this person can come in and help us and then great you know yeah. we, we need that
1: yeah and so he he wanted him to come in to, to basically say uh to look at the business uh, to work for us but to look at the business and say yes the, the the business is not fatally flawed the business makes sense uh and then i'll invest more money And so this guy came in, uh, and he came in in uh, August of 2019. So now it's just a month or two later. It's August of 2019. Uh, He starts on August 1st, uh, I think it was. And then uh, as soon as he started, by the next day, uh, he was telling this landlord, this is a great business. I mean, he was a true believer. He really was. Yeah. He still, he still is. Yeah. Uh, and he wanted, uh, his old friend and they'd been friends for 20, 30 years to invest more. I mean, now he was working there. He believed in it. Um, and the landlord still had some cold feet, still wasn't sure. Uh, and he, he wanted, um, he wanted more. He wanted to feel that his new investment would somehow be protected even more from me, you know, as the CEO, making any more mistakes. So at some point in, I think it might have been September, maybe just a month later, and now we're getting closer and closer to this time of running out of money, which looks like it's going to be in December, you know, according to our models. And in September, Uh, this landlord said, you know what? I'm glad you hired that guy, um, but I don't want him to report to you. I want you to report to him. I want him to be the CEO of Ample Hills. Uh, You know, he's my closest trusted friend. If you want me to invest millions more into this business, make him the CEO, you report to him. You'll still have the creative vision of the company, uh, but he's going to be the financial guardrails of the company.
2: At this time, simultaneously, were you looking at other sources for funding?
1: No. No. And I think that's, you know, ultimately, that is the mistake that we made. Yeah, Because we went out to him, you know, naturally, when when you have a lot of investors, and we had investors that had invested $10,000 to investors that had invested a million or $2 million, you start from the top. You know, if you have a problem and you're going back and you're trying to raise more money, you start from your largest investor because you want to get them on board first and we went to him and since the very first day he indicated that he would be there and be there to support us we kept delaying going out to other investors because we wanted to make sure we had him locked down and that his support was absolute and that he'd written a check. And if we could get to that point of him writing that check, then we could go out to all the other investors and um, the money would come. You know, that his stamp uh, of approval and this new CEO, uh, first not CEO and then CEO, uh, would give us that um, imprint of, of validity. The problem in retrospect was that we spent three or four months chasing that without um, going out to other people. And we should have been going out to anybody and everybody. There really wasn't, um, I don't think, as much urgency uh, as we needed to have had in June when we learned that information. We had all that urgency come October, November, and December, at which point it was a, a little too late. But, just getting back to this idea of, of of this guy coming in and being CEO I mean that was a huge uh, that was a huge concession that we made and it was a difficult thing for me personally. I had been the CEO I had been um, the one responsible ultimately for all of those kind of decisions, obviously in lockstep with Jackie, but I had the title of CEO and you know at the end of the day, though, I recognized that it was my financial decisions that had you know brought us to this position so I didn't actually go unwillingly I mean I I really felt like this guy this made sense I would lead the creative vision of the company and this guy would lead the financial guardrails of the company and sort of keep us on the train tracks if you will so it really actually made sense to both Jackie and I and we agreed to that and we did that and then he still didn't invest. So we, Do you
2: know why?
1: No, no. I mean, to this day, I'm still not sure why. I, mm-hmm. I it, it, It's one of the things that just eats away at me. I just think, and, and his friend, I mean, this guy that had known him for decades that came in a, as the new CEO, I mean, it, he was in such a difficult position because he'd come in basically knowing that he was there only as, you know, the the request of this landlord and this investor in order to secure this new investment. And then when the investment didn't come, and it was, uh, I think it was around the end of October, the beginning of November of mm-hmm. 2019, when, when the landlord finally said, we're not investing another dollar, that's it, we're done, we're not doing it. And we just... Uh, yeah I think at the end of the day he just couldn't get comfortable with the notion that he'd been burned uh, and he couldn't um, he just couldn't come around to feeling confident again I, I don't know I, I still I still don't know and it still hurts but at that moment in time we then said, well, we've got to go out. To all the other investors, there were there were dozens of other investors. Um, we immediately, you know, lowered the valuation of the company.
2: What month was this? We're talking. Oh, sorry. about?
1: sorry. This was uh, October, November. I'd say this was um, the end of October or so, and we um, were really um, we knew that we didn't have uh, money come December, so we made the decision on uh, November 1st to stop paying rent. Uh, we had 12, 13 shops at the time. Mm-hmm. We decided we just couldn't pay any of the landlords November 1st because we'd have been out of money and couldn't make payroll by the end of November. And ultimately, when you're, when you're sort of fighting against those financial headwinds and you really are running out of money— the final last straw that's the difference between the company being in business and not being in business is not being able to make payroll because you're legally required to keep paying the people that are obviously working for you and if you can't pay them then they're not working for you and you have no business and so the very first thing that you do is you stop paying other bills you know and the first big bill that we stopped paying was all the rent in order for us to have enough money to keep paying payroll so that the shops could stay open because we knew we could do that for a period of time um
0: but yes
2: when when this is happening what's going through your mind at this point both of you
0: mm, um um yeah it it it, i had no idea you know what what the next steps were really going to be i mean well we did have an idea and i i it was it was hard because it was about you know uh cutting cutting people's um jobs and um i mean we we had expanded to the point where we had grown different departments and um, you know had had you know taken on a number of different employees that were um, you know working to continue to help grow Ample Hills, and now we knew that we were going to have to cut some of these people, and that was that was hard. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it was it was also because you know uh, I mean obviously we had built relationships with them all, and. You know, I felt, you know, very responsible for, uh, you know, bringing them on, even though I might not have directly brought them on, but I, I you know, it was a difficult time.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, we started making a series of, of layoffs. I mean, we, had, we, we knew we had to contract the payroll. Um, we also cut our own salaries uh, by 150 percent uh and down yeah that was this
0: we initially did it just yeah by 10 yeah. percent, and
1: then uh, by uh november december we brought our own salaries down to uh, the the the, me, the the minimum wage for uh, executives and we
0: tried to not pay ourselves at all at yes that point. but
1: apparently that's not legal if you're actually a a company with investors it was strange um but in any event i i think you know the the real thing that we had to do was we had to lower the valuation of the company. When you're raising money, you set a value to the company. And so you're selling a part of the company. You're selling equity in the company in exchange for money. And so by the time we were entering into this phase, Jackie and I owned 41% of Ample Hills, right? And the other 59 percent were owned by uh, a whole series of investors and so the value of the company that we had last established had been about 40 to 45 million dollars so on paper you know we own 41 percent of that but you know uh, that doesn't do you any good if uh, you don't you know if the company's not being sold to a, a big company that, that that's not money in your pocket, but we owned that percentage of the company. And so when we went out to raise more money in a, in a point of what was absolutely uh, a point of desperation, one, it's winter. So nobody's really thinking about ice cream and investments in ice cream. There's a psychological element to that. And then two, um, we clearly were in a place where we had to have money. And that's never a strength when you're going out to investors. And so we immediately dialed back the value from 40 million to 30 uh, that didn't that wasn't enough we dialed it all the way down to 15 million dollars which was a big um, what's called a down round and that wasn't enough and there just there just weren't a uh, um, bites there were a lot of meetings a lot of um, um, conversations but it, it nothing was really happening eventually we lowered it to a valuation of just one million dollars um, and and we thought, for sure, this kind of basic uh, de minimis valuation would do the trick. Um, the problem with that was that there was so much uh, debt on the company, um, bank debt, um, and there was, there was such a hole uh, to dig ourselves out of that it wasn't just a matter of the valuation. It was a matter of investors believing there was a path back to profitability. Um, and then, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, you know, we certainly, you know, you had asked like how we were feeling about the, the, the process. I mean, I still felt, you know, (laughs) forever, ever the optimist and always the half glass full. I mean, I really still believed in the brand and, and, um, the ability for Ample Hills to uh, come out of this process and still uh, and be leaner and meaner and, and stronger. Um, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't really despairing. It was just, a, we were just out there doing a lot of work. I mean, I called Bob Iger. I mean, I thought, you know, Bob could help. And obviously he was one of the folks.
2: Was that a hard phone call to make?
1: Oh, God, yes. I mean, uh, you know, and he could hear it. I, I remember him just saying to me, "God, I can hear it in your voice. That you know, it's it's a it's a dark time." And you know, you know, he had been sort of a, a part of that really incredible rise uh, and, and story that we had to tell. And um, for me to call him and tell him that we were, you know, basically begging. And 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 at this point of. Um, the end of the road, uh, yeah, it was, it was hard. It it felt like, you know, the son going to the dad and, um, trying to tell him that you'd done something wrong or you'd wrecked the car, uh, and you had to, you had to come up with the money to pay for it. Uh, you know, and, and to his credit, he, he tried. I mean, the, the thing is, is that, you know, Disney has a whole bunch of, uh, you know, interior uh, mandates and rules about how they invest in other companies and the size of the companies they invest in. And, and ultimately, Ample Hills was just way, way too small to be something that they could participate in. And he just he couldn't do it financially. He did at that moment, though, actually reach out to try and help still in the way that he knew how, which was um He, he'd long ago introduced the ice cream to Jimmy Kimmel, you know, Jimmy Kimmel show and, uh, Jimmy Kimmel had become a fan and ordered ice cream and was supportive, but, uh, Jimmy does once a year in the fall in October, November. He uh, he does a week that he comes back to Brooklyn because Jimmy Kimmel's originally a, a Brooklyn boy, and so he brings his show back from Los Angeles to Brooklyn once a year uh, and shoots in Brooklyn at uh, at BAM at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and so uh, Bob had suggested, well, why don't you make a flavor of ice cream for Jimmy for 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 his week in Brooklyn, and, and let's see if we can get it on the show, you know, get some get some buzz and and pizzazz, and we did that. I mean, we you know I reached out to, to the the contacts that Bob had given us at Jimmy Kimmel's show we developed a flavor with Jimmy Kimmel. What was it, it called?
0: Jimmy, Jimmy's Bananas in Brooklyn?
1: Jimmy's Bananas for Brooklyn?
0: Virginia, yeah, it was a, like <laughs> it was a debate, right? Yeah, and then, he, yeah. But it was, yeah, Jimmy's Bananas
2: for what Brooklyn. What was in it?
1: It was uh, Well, Jimmy was like uh, obsessed with banana ice cream. That was his yeah. favorite thing. Yeah. And then he also loved uh, U-Bet, ch- chocolate syrup. U-Bet's like a 100-year-old Brooklyn company that makes chocolate syrup. And, um, so he wanted there to be fudge chunks and chocolate syrup swirls and a banana ice cream. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Jimmy's bananas for Brooklyn. And it was, I mean, it was great. And we made that and we did some artwork for the pint container, uh, showed Jimmy with the Brooklyn bridge behind him. And, um, and they did. He, you know, he featured it on, on Jimmy Kimmel's show. He brought the pint out. Yeah. Um, who's the guest? Uh, who's his uh, sidekick on the Jimmy Kimmel show? Was sitting there eating the pint. And Jimmy uh, was showing the pint and telling people about Ample Hills. So, I mean, it was, it was wonderful. And that, that kind of um, publicity and excitement around the brand, again, was happening at the same moment. We were struggling with how are we going to make payroll next week? And how are we going to make payroll next week? And how are we going to make payroll next week? I mean, that went on for the next two or three months. So I I guess it was now it was November, December Mm -hmm. into January. Uh, We still weren't paying bills. Landlords, of course, are starting to get angry. Landlords are starting to go through uh, eviction proceedings, you know, which, of course, you know, takes months and months. So we still thought we'd find a solution, we'd find an investor. And we were having meetings. It's not as if um, there weren't any leads. I mean, literally every day we were- Every day there was a meeting. Yeah, we were meeting with people because uh, people loved the brand. The problem was we had three and a half million dollars of bank debt, um, and at this point, it had taken this long, but by, by January of 2020, we had finally gotten a finger on what the problems had been with the factory all the story about the 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 labor ballooning the costs of operating it on a day-to-day and a month-to-month level we didn't have eyes on because we'd been in the midst of that sinking ship with the bandaging it bandaging it but by january we had got all the models done and we had a clear understanding on models going forward, even into 2021, what it would take mm-hmm. for the factory to write itself and to not be a drag, like an albatross around the neck of the business. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that what those numbers showed was we had to pour a lot of money into the business. We couldn't shrink or contract out of uh, the problems that we had. We had a factory that simply needed to make twice as much ice cream as it was making in order for it to be efficient and not lose money hand over fist. But we only had 12 or 13 shops. So in order to do that, you know, you'd have to go build out another 10 or 12 shops overnight.
2: How how much ice cream did you need to produce? Oh,
1: um, hundreds of thousands of gallons. I mean, I think we were at Two hundred and fifty to two hundred and eighty thousand gallons a year by the end of nineteen, and we were estimating that that needed to get up to over four hundred thousand gallons, uh, something to that effect in order for the factory to be at a break even place. But, you know, where does that extra ice cream, you have to sell that extra ice cream. And that's a gradual process. And if it's a gradual process of opening shops and wholesale accounts, then for a gradual time, you are going to be bleeding money, which ultimately is okay. I mean, there's a lot of businesses, hell, Amazon, okay, I'm not trying to compare Amazon to Ample Hills. Okay, I am. All right, I am. Ample Hills and Amazon, same thing. Amazon for for how long decades they were losing money right Mm -hmm. and they but they knew that they were going to eventually make money they were going to reach a critical mass and and honestly if we'd had enough money in the bank we could have gotten to that same place not the same place as amazon but to the same place of of making more money than we were losing Mm -hmm. the problem was is we didn't have it and so any new investor had to had to believe all that had to buy all that and had to know that beyond the million dollar valuation, they also were gonna to have to pour in two, three, four million dollars in further losses before the ship turned around, before it got righted. And that was just too hard to to, to convince somebody of. And so by February, uh, the middle of February, we were starting to get very close, days away, weeks away from losing uh shops that we had you know due to the eviction proceedings that were becoming imminent and we certainly didn't want to have a a store just closed down because we were evicted or or the marshal showed up and so we were at a place where we had run out of options and bankruptcy um which was just this dirty word that we were trying to stay away from for for months and months became the only path that we could see um and even in that uh, thinking, we thought, well, you know, we could see a way out of it because businesses come in and out of bankruptcy all the time. They operate in bankruptcy um, and they operate successfully in bankruptcy. What bankruptcy does is it protects you from all of the um, creditors. It stops the rent. Uh, I mean, it stops the efforts to collect rent. It stops eviction proceedings and it wipes away or discharges uh, the debt that is on the business. And so it would allow us to come through in a leaner, meaner way. There was just one thing that got in the way of all that. We filed for bankruptcy on March 15th of 2020. On March 16th, anybody remember
2: what happened? (laughs) How can you forget?
0: New York City shuts down.
1: Yeah, due to coronavirus. And so the coronavirus didn't cause us to go into the bankruptcy, but it did have a profound impact on the process of the bankruptcy, which, you know, I think we can get to next week. Uh, I think we've uh, taken us up to the moment of having to, to, to file, which was, um, you know, A long, a a long and arduous process, a lot of uh, false starts and, uh, you know, hopes being dashed of of, of trying to to stop it from happening. Thanks, Debbie. Okay. Bye-bye.